So if you look with me, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, says this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jamie was a young uh, person who made a stupid, silly mistake in high school and continued to make stupid, silly mistakes throughout her young adulthood until she finally ended up out of money, about to be evicted, without a job, without a relationship. And she was talking to her mother on the phone about this, and her mother was trying to encourage her and tell her that, that she was not too far from God. And, and Jamie asked, why would God ever save me? John was a man who on the outside seemed like he had it all. He had a great job. He had a marriage that appeared to be great. He had kids who were perfectly obedient and said, yes, father. And yet he was harboring a, a secret sin. And it was gnawing away at him and it was cutting down the foundations of his marriage. And he knew just as he sat in church that morning that this will be the week. This will be the week where I'm found out, where who I really am will be exposed. And as he heard the pastor say that God would, can save those who call on him, he wondered, why would God save a hypocrite like me? 
Maybe you've asked yourself some of these same questions. Why would God save me? Why would God redeem me? Why would God rescue me? And that same question is a question that maybe if, you, maybe if you've had conversations with unbelieving friends and family, that, that often gets asked by them. Oftentimes, uh, one of the objections I've heard to Christianity is, why would God save no good, dirty, rotten people? Why would an eternal God, an infinite God, save people who are deeply flawed? It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. And today in our passage, I think we're going to get the answer to that question. Why does God save? Why does God save? And so uh, here's the outlines. Those of you who are here, uh, often you know that I'm terrible about following outlines. So I'm going to give it to you now and ignore it the rest of the time. The work of, here's that line, the work of the Spirit, the work of the Son, and the work of the Father. The work of the Spirit, the work of the Son, and the work of the Father. And that last point uh, was from an earlier rough draft. Work of the Spirit, the work of the Son, and the work of the Father. As we walk through this, we're going to see why it is that God saves sinners. Now, I just want to point one thing out before we get deep into this. This is a passage which no doubt... Is has some deep theology, all right? So this is a passage which no doubt has some teaching, which takes a, a little bit of work to, to, to process and to understand and digest. I'm going to try to help you do that as best as I can this morning. And yet it's a passage that speaks to an urgent need, a need that I think that we all can relate to. And sometimes we think that theology should be, is, that it is not practical. And I just want to point out that, at least according in this passage, uh, that's not Jesus' approach. But Jesus knows that the more that we know about God, the more that we know about who God is and what God has done for us, the more that we understand about His plan for our lives, the more that we understand about what it means to be saved and how to properly interpret Scripture, the more godly our lives will be and the more communion with God we will experience. Uh, Good, sound understanding of Scripture cannot be divorced from what it means to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. These two things go together. And I think we will see that as we, as we come um, uh, through this passage. Now, this passage features a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he's a Jewish leader, a ruler of the Pharisees. And if you're reading this and you're thinking, this is kind of sketchy, that is the right response. Nicodemus comes out. At night, remember where we left off in John. John has just cleaned out the temple and in front of the view of everyone. He just had this public confrontation with, with the Pharisees. And Nicodemus doesn't want anybody to see him coming to Jesus. So he comes at night when the crowds can't see him and when his Pharisee friends can't see him. This is sketchy. Nicodemus comes when, when he can't be seen. And he comes to Jesus in such a way that he is trying to kind of play both sides. He's kind of trying to fence it a little bit. He's kind of trying to, uh, to be re- seen as respectable by both sides. And even his first address to Jesus, uh, kind of, you, you get that sense. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. He's paying him a compliment. He's trying to give him a sense of respectability. He says, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. 
And what I love about this passage is that Jesus is so gentle with him. And clearly, I think Nicodemus is insecure. He has some issues with people-pleasing. He's, he, he's somebody who is a little bit anxious and fearful, and yet Jesus is so gentle with him, and yet so firm. And, and Jesus doesn't, doesn't allow him to uh, try to play both sides, and yet Jesus is so kind and so gentle. And even though Jesus is pretty direct about what, what Nicodemus is doing that is wrong, Uh, Jesus is still patient, and he hears his questions, and he answers them. He gives honest answers to honest questions. And he tries to talk with Nicodemus and to teach Nicodemus. And so when Nicodemus comes and asks him, how is it that, um, or he says, you know, I know who you are. You're a teacher come from God. And Nicodemus is, I think, expecting, if you compliment somebody, you're expecting what in return? A compliment. I think that's what's happening here. Nicodemus says, Rabbi. And he's hoping to hear, rabbi. He's hoping to hear a compliment just like he's paid to Jesus. And Jesus just does not allow that to stand. I I love Jesus' response in verse 3. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, no one, uh, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, like like most good pious Jews of this time period, Nicodemus thought that if he could just be good enough, that if he could just get enough gold stars and merit badges, that if he could just uh, keep all the rules and be good enough, then God would look on him with favor and that he could see the kingdom of God. And that when, when God came and he restored the nation of Israel, that he would be able to be part of that because he was a good law keeper. And Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus essentially says, Nicodemus, you are so screwed up, we got to start back at the beginning. we got to tear this down to the studs because, brother, you have some issues. And Nicodemus, like most of us would be, is a little bit flabbergasted. Which explains why he's kind of sarcastic. Okay, Nicodemus knows that Jesus is not talking about literally, physically being born a second time. But he doesn't know what else to do. So he responds with, I think, something of a snarky response in verse 4. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? Man, I could just imagine one of my brothers saying that. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And notice how kind and gentle Jesus is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Well, obviously, Jesus says, someone must be born of the Spirit. Now, maybe when Jesus says that, that is uh, you're a little bit shocked because you're a little bit like, why? what does that have to do with anything? What, what is he even talking about? But Jesus is referring back to a very prominent passage in the Old Testament that is predicting the new covenant. This is something Nicodemus would have known. Jesus is referring to this scripture. So Ezekiel 20, uh, 36, 25 through 27 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is God's promise through Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What Jesus is just saying is what the Old Testament has always said. Is that somebody, in order to see God, and somebody, in order to enjoy eternal life, must receive the the new heart. This goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. And Jesus is just citing Ezekiel 36, which Nicodemus would have known because he was a rabbi. This was his job. Nicodemus, of course, should have known what he was talking about. And to which Jesus continues, he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Not only does Jesus say you must be born of the Spirit, he says, you can't do that on your own, Nicodemus. God's the one who has to give you his spirit. God's the one who has to create new life in you. It sounds very much like what we've already seen in the Gospel of John. In John 1, 12 and 13, it says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And again, we saw in John chapter 1, verse 33, where John the Baptist says this about Jesus, that he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. We've already seen much of this, that this is kind of at the foundation for the Gospel of John, what it means to be born again. It's somebody who the Spirit has come, and the Spirit has applied eternal life to, that they've put the law in their hearts, that they've resurrected them from the inside out, they've infused them and injected them with the new man. This is, this is what John has already been telling us, and something that Nicodemus, as a teacher of the law, someone who knew Scripture, who had large portions of it memorized, should have known. And what we see here is Jesus is also gently teaching him about what the, who the Holy Spirit is. See, sometimes when we think of the Holy Spirit, we think of kind of a, a force like in Star Wars. And we think that the Spirit is just kind of hovering over everything and, and it just has to be tapped into it like the force. But what we see here is that the Spirit is a person. And the Spirit does what it wants and it makes new who it wants to make new. The Spirit is free. The Spirit is the, the third, the only, the only way the Spirit can do this is if He is the third person of the Trinity as if it's God himself making people new. And this is the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit in salvation is to make us new, to put the law in our hearts, to apply eternal life, to apply salvation and redemption to us. Now, Nicodemus should have known all of this because Nicodemus knew his Old Testament. And yet, we come to another snarky question. Well, how can these things be? And notice again how kind and gentle Jesus is with him, although Jesus is slightly more blunt here in verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Now, listen to what he says in verses 11 and 12, because this is is key. He's, he's He's trying to tell him what he's already told him. 
says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What Jesus is saying there is that if you want to understand heavenly things, you have to be born of above. If you want to understand spiritual things, you have to be born of the Spirit. If you want to understand the things of God, you have to be born again. So Jesus says, I'm going to tell you the answer to your question, but you're not going to understand it. And he's trying to push, push on him this need that we all have to be born again. And then he says this in verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from the Son of Man. Now we've already talked a little bit about this title, the Son of Man, back in chapter 1. This phrase, the Son of Man, refers to Daniel chapter 7, and someday I will be brave enough to preach through Daniel. But in Daniel 7, uh, what we have is a picture of God. He's called the Ancient of Days, and he's reigning on a throne. And ascending to the Ancient of Days, to the throne room, is one called the Son of Man. And the one who rules and reigns over the whole universe gives to the Son of Man his kingdom, and his authority. And he invites him to reign and to rule with him. And so when Jesus calls himself son of man, he's saying, that's me. That I'm the one who's going to reign with God. And, And we can see specifically, there's this theme of the kingdom of God that's already been building earlier in this passage. And his whole rationale is, Because I'm from above, because I'm from heaven, because I will reign with my Father, I know what my Father's plan is. I know heavenly things. And then he says something in verses 14 and 15, which is truly audacious. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this is the passage that Wendy read for us earlier, that the serpent was being lifted into the wilderness. And, and if you didn't hear that very well, if you never really read Numbers, let me read that again for you, just so we have it in front of us. But Jesus is referencing this story in Numbers 21. It says this, From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So if you are a parent and you've ever taken kids through on a road trip, you know exactly what this is. Going from from Egypt to Israel, are we there yet? No, we're not. Are we there yet? No, not yet. And so God does what all you parents want to do, but don't have the ability to. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, (laughs) and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So God tells Moses, if you want to be rescued from these serpents, here's what you do. You make a bronze serpent and you lift it up on a pole so that everyone can see it. And whoever looks at the serpent will be healed. Now, what he is doing there is he is drawing a connection between the sin of Israel and the first sin of Adam and Eve. If you'll remember, the first sin of Adam and Eve is when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, and they, they sinned, and, and they fell. And because they fell, they had the curse resting on them. And so when God says, hold the serpent up, he's drawing a connection to that first sin. He's drawing a connection to that, and he's, he, what he is doing is he is putting the curse itself to shame. Because Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so he is cursing the curse itself. That he's putting death itself to death. And, and so the way that Israel can receive that new life is if they look to, remember how important that language of seeing is for the Gospel of John. If they look to the serpent, if they see the serpent, if they acknowledge the serpent, if they gaze at it and stare at it, they will be saved. And when Jesus says that the Son of Man, a.k.a. me, will be lifted up, that, the, that I will be lifted up, what he's saying is the curse itself will be cursed in me. That I will become sin for you. That I will be condemned for you is the language he uses later in the passage. That I will die in your place. Jesus is predicting the cross. That because Jesus died, because he bears the penalty of our covenant breaking, we can receive the blessings of his covenant keeping. This is exactly the same theology that the Apostle Paul teaches. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or in Galatians 3.13 and 14, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus became a curse for you and a curse for me. He bore the penalty of our covenant breaking and so that we can receive the blessings of his covenant keeping. If the role of the Son, or if the role of the Spirit is to apply eternal life to us, the role of the Son is to purchase eternal life for us at the cost of his own blood. Now, what we see next is the role of the Father. And simply put, the, the role of the Father is that he sends his Son to do exactly that. He sends his son to die on the cross for us and for our sins. But you'll notice at the beginning of verse 16 that Jesus answers a question that Nicodemus doesn't even ask. 
It's very interesting. Nicodemus doesn't even ask this question. We've already seen Nicodemus is somewhat snarky and, and, and a little bit insecure and will ask. But it, it, maybe it's just because he's kind of silenced. Maybe it's because he doesn't know what to say after Jesus has said all this. But Jesus answers the question that Nicodemus should have asked. He says four. Because the question that Nicodemus should have asked is, why would God do that? Why would the Almighty, all-righteous, all-just one come down from heaven and bear my curse? Why would he do that? It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. To which Jesus responds, For God so loved the world. Why does the Father send the Son to purchase the blessings of the covenant at the cost of His own blood? Why does the Father send the Son so that we could also receive the Spirit? Because God loves the world. Why does God save us? Because He loves us. Why does God accomplish salvation for us? Because He loves us. Of course, God is not dependent upon us. God doesn't love us in the sense that He was getting tired of Himself before before, um, creation started. It wasn't like he got sick of the son's sense of humor, so he's like, oh, I better create these humans. At least they'll give me something new to do. Because Scripture tells us that from eternity past, God himself is love. First John tells us this, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why does God love us? Because he does. There's nothing behind the love of God, but the love of God. God loves you because he wants to love you. Uh, Parker and I were talking about this earlier this week. That It would have been easier for God, the minute that Adam and Eve ate the fruit, to just wipe the slate clean and start over. Why doesn't he do that? Because he loves us. And you don't leave something to ruin if you love it, you redeem it. Paul tells us in Romans that someone might dare to die for a righteous person. But for but God shows his love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the first time in the Gospel of John that the love of God is mentioned. It's the most emphatic, most important part about this whole passage, about these whole 21 verses is that God wants to share the love that he has with himself before eternity began with you and with me. I love the story of um, Henry Harry Morehouse, and there's a 
biogra- short biography of him in your bulletins. I uh, heard about him when I was a freshman in college, and I've loved him ever since. Uh, Henry Morehouse was an evangelist in, in England, and uh, he was uh, kind of a scrawny, scraggly, not incredibly attractive-looking person. And uh, he met D.L. Moody, and those of you who know, I went to Moody Bible Institute, and so I, I have an affection for D.L. Moody, too. D.L. Moody, he, t- he introduced himself as a preacher to D.L. Moody, and D.L. Moody says, I don't think so. I don't think this guy doesn't look like a preacher. And, and Morehouse says, well, I'm coming to the United States, and I was curious if you'd let me preach in your church. And he's like, well, when you get there, let me know. Very nonchalant, very off-putting. And so a couple months later, D.L. Moody is, he gets a telegram. He's on a train somewhere, and he says, it's from Henry Morehouse. And Morehouse says, hey, I just got here. I'm in Philadelphia. Moody says, well, when you get to Chicago, let me know. And so Morehouse comes to Chicago. And D.L. Moody is out of town, and so he, he sends back to the deacons of his church. He says, look, it's a Thursday night. Nobody's going to show up. Just let him preach, and then when I get back tomorrow, I'll deal with it. So he preaches, and Moody gets in, and he's having dinner with his wife, and he says, uh, with the, the words no preacher wants to hear, she says, well, how did you like it? She says, oh, I, I loved him. He's preached so different than you. And she says, and he says, what? What, what, what about D.L. Moody? Do you, do you, what, what about Henry Morehouse did you like? And he says, well, he told us that God loved us. Henry Morehouse said, and D.L. Moody says, I, everybody knows that's not true. And so D.L. Moody said, well, they're going to let him preach again tonight. I'll go and listen. He kind of goes up and sits in the, what I call the splash zone, the first front row, and has his arms all folded and... And he hears Henry Morehouse, this scrawny, scraggly, unwell man, ascend to the pulpit of the Moody Church and preach on this verse. And D.L. Moody wept in tears. And for seven nights in a row, Henry Morehouse came back to the pulpit at Moody Church and preached again and again and again on this verse. On John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And so the last night that he's there, he comes up, the seventh night. And everyone thinks, well, maybe he's going to pick out something new. And he says this, if I could borrow Jacob's ladder and climb up into heaven and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, if he could tell me how much love the Father has for the world, all he could say would be, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in your soul, in your heart, don't you know that this has to be true? Don't you know, don't you long, don't you desire for a father whose love is perfect and for a a brother who is on your side and for a, a spirit who is ever near 
In your heart, don't you long for communion with this kind of God? Don't you long to to know Him and to walk with Him and to be with Him? For Him to be yours and you to be His. In your heart, don't you long to know the love of God? And the good news of the gospel is this. It's not just that you go to a cool place when you die. The good news of the gospel is not just that your sins are forgiven, although that is glorious and necessary and true. The good news of the gospel is that God gives you himself. That the love of God is not meant to be something that you experience once when you become a Christian. But it's meant to be your ongoing daily experience as a Christian. John clearly says this in verse 21 when he says, Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That it might be known that his works are done as one who has communion with the Lord, as one who's been adopted by the Father, as one who's been filled by the Spirit, as one who has Jesus as an older brother. Do you understand that the love of God is not just necessary to make you a Christian? The love of God is what God gives you as a Christian. He chooses to share himself with you. And this is why he sent his son to die on the cross. And this is why he gives us the spirit. So that we would never again be without him. This is the love of God. This is why God saves us. It's very clear that this is the purpose that, for which the Son came into the world. In verse 17, it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Christians, this is the most important point of this passage. If, if, as I was trimming my, my sermon back a bit, and some of you I know are thinking, you trimmed it. This is the one thing that I knew you can't surrender because this is the point of the passage that God saves us because he loves us because he wants to love us. So let me help try to apply this today. I know that there's some some more here that we didn't get as in-depth to. But let me just try to apply this today. The longer that you are like Nicodemus and craving and longing for respectability and the approval of men, the longer that you're being driven by nervousness and anxiety about what other people will think about you, the harder it will be to rest in the love of God. If you are enraptured and overwhelmed and concerned 
about what other people think, then that fear and that concern like the winter clouds will cloud out the sun of God's love. To receive and to rest in the love of God requires that we surrender respectability. Number two, you must be born again. You must be born again. This is not a take it or leave it. This is not a secondary issue. This is not something that some Christians do, but others don't. If you want the love of God, you must be born again. And you say, well, how do I do that? How do I be born again? How, I, 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 you just told me I can't, that the Spirit has to come and indwell me. The Spirit has to give me new life. You believe in the Son. We've already seen that in verse 18. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. That like the Israelites in the wilderness, you look to the Son on the cross and you see the death of your sin in him. That you acknowledge your sin and you confess it before him. You ask for his forgiveness. That's the only way that any of us can be born again. And maybe you say, Matt, you don't know the life that I've lived. You don't know the lies that I've stacked my life upon. I'm too far gone that there's no way that God would save me. I would just say, you just need to read the Bible to see that's not true. I mean, you look at some of these fools in the Old Testament. I mean, we could have serious problems about some of them becoming members here. And yet God in his kindness and his graciousness saves those who come to the end of themselves. You must be born again and you can be born again. There's also in this passage a connection between resting and the love of God and between living a life of integrity. You catch that there's a connection between loving, resting in the love of God and living a life of integrity. In verse 20, it describes the Christian life as this. For everyone who does, uh, it says for, in verse 21, sorry, it says, but whoever does what is true. I mean, that's such a strange phrase. Whoever does what is true. To be a Christian means that we live a life of integrity, that we do what is true. Why is it that resting in the love of God results in a life that means to do what is true? And I believe it's this. The longer that we cling and seek after and desire respectability and the approval of men, the more that we will bend over backward to tell people and to put on a face whatever we have to do that people would like us to twist ourselves in whatever circle is necessary just to be approved by others. But if you rest in the love of God, 
if you know the love of God, if you have seen it and you've tasted that it is good, then you can stop trying to put on a front for others. You can stop trying to impress others. You can stop trying to be respectable. You can, unlike Nicodemus here, come into the light, which is the next application. Because if we walk with integrity, it means that we're willing to come into the light to have our works be exposed in this passage. It means that we're willing to confess our sins and to ask for forgiveness. It means that we're, that we're willing to invite others to look into our lives and to tell us things that we've done wrong, to ask for forgiveness, that we don't get defensive when someone critiques us, but rather we receive it and we grow from it. And the only way that you can be not insecure enough that that doesn't bother you on a deep level is if your ultimate worth doesn't come from what other people think about you. And the only way I know to not have your ultimate worth not come from what other people say about you is to find your ultimate worth and significance in Christ himself, to rest in the love of God. I also think that this means that we have to love the light more than the darkness. That we have to love the light more than the darkness. That we have to choose not to treasure up things here on earth, but to treasure up things in heaven. That we have to choose not to love and invest and cultivate a life in the shadows like Smeagol hiding ourselves in a cave, staring at something that we could never even see because it's so dark out. Christians, to be, a, to be a Christian means to love the light more than the darkness. Uh, in our small group this week, we were talking, and I think it was Tabitha who said one of the ways that this passage is convicting is, is Jesus... Jesus is so secure in his Father's love that he, while he is kind, is unbelievably blunt with Nicodemus. And sometimes I think as Christians, when we are sharing the gospel with others, we do so much work to make ourselves seem respectable. When sometimes we just need to say, you must be born again. You must be born again and let the chips fall where they may. And here's one, one final application is this, I, and this is true of myself. Oftentimes when, oftentimes when I am feeling sorry for myself, or maybe I'm going through some kind of suffering or something, I want to try to find or, or try to ask God for proof that he loves me. So I say, God, if you really loved me, wouldn't you take away X? Wouldn't you put this thing to silence? Wouldn't, wouldn't you just make all this right? And while I do believe God answered prayers, I'm not sure God ever answers that prayer. I'm not sure ever God answers that prayer with a yes. Because I, I think, I think that 
Jesus would tell us the best token of his love that he could ever give you. The, the best revelation of his love that he could ever give you. The best manifestation and appearance of the love of the Father for you is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I mean, what more do you want than that? What more could God give you than himself? I mean, isn't that better than a full bank account? Isn't that better than everything in your life making sense all of a sudden? Isn't that better than whatever temporal infirmity is weighing you down disappearing? The best sign that God could give you of his love for you, he's already given. May God remind us that that is true. One of the interesting things about the Gospel of John is it introduces these characters and we never find out what happens after it. They come on the stage and then they leave. But the story of Nicodemus is not so. Because after this, after this scene, we see a, a slow, in two different scenes, but, but I think genuine progression of Nicodemus where he steps out of the darkness and comes into the light. We see it most ultimately with the death of Christ, where after all of Jesus' disciples have fled into the far reaches of, of Jerusalem, Nicodemus actually comes forward with Joseph, with Joseph of Arimathea and asks for the body of Christ. And, and tradition tells us that Nicodemus was so open about his newfound faith in Christ that one day he actually died for his faith. That one day he actually came into the light and found that whatever else he might lose in the world, to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings was worth it. To rest in the love of God was worth it, even if it meant surrendering all respectability. May we be likewise. Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you that you are God who does not allow us to rest on our laurels, who does not allow us to cultivate our own personal cult of personality. That you are a God who loves. And that you are a God who shares your love with us. And so, Father, we pray now that you would not allow this word to return void. But Father, if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in your son, who's never looked to him on the tree, that you give them the boldness and the courage to do that even now. That you would give them the boldness and courage to confess their sins and to call out to you. Father, I pray for all of us that you would help us to walk in the light to live in communion with Christ. Father, I pray that you would deeply impress upon us this fact that our labor is not in vain.